There's an island off the north coast of Germany called Heligoland. In 1994, off the northwestern coast of that island, a body was discovered, with injuries that suggested foul play. Wearing smart clothes and expensive shoes, he was given the name The Gentleman. But nearly 30 years later, he's still unidentified, and his killers have got away with murder. Welcome to the mysterious case of the Gentleman of Heligoland, one of Europe's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 4 Shoes, News and Additional Clues We left Episode 3 intrigued by these shoes found on the body. One shoe had been pictured amongst the details released into the public domain by the German police, but something about it wasn't quite right. Something was puzzling us about that shoe. It was a churchy shoe so an expensive, well-made shoe. But in discussion with Jonathan Walford, our clothing and label expert in Canada, he'd commented that the size didn't seem right. It had been described as an 11, but Jonathan seemed to suggest it was a significantly bigger size than that. And the size becomes important because if it is a very large size, that provides an opportunity the more rare the size, the more rare the shoe, and the more possible the chances of tracing when, where, and to whom that shoe was sold. And as this shoe represents one of the very few clues we have at our disposal, we needed to mine that shoe for everything it could possibly tell us about its wearer. So I needed a second opinion on that. Now, back in the 1990s, I was involved myself in the shoe production industry. I ran a factory which made shoes, believe it or not. And if there was ever a technical question that needed to be answered, there was only one organization that you really would turn to. That organization was called SATRA, the Shoe and Allied Trade Research Association. They were, and still are, the technical experts on anything footwear related. They're also based near Northampton, where the shoe was probably made. I went through all my old contacts, hoping I still had some links with Satra. And I did. And I reached out to someone I knew would have an expert opinion on this shoe. A man called Tom Bays. Tom was the head of innovation for Satra, but now is Satra's technical advisor. He's worked at Satra for nearly 40 years. Tom Bays knows shoes like very few people know shoes. And if we were going to understand everything we possibly could about that photograph of the shoe from the dead body, talking to Tom Bays would be a very, very good place to start. So, 
I reached out to Tom. I sent him the photo and patiently waited for his opinion on what that photograph told him about the shoe. And in my opinion, it was worth waiting for. So, Tom, great to speak to you again, and I really appreciate your, your help on this. So I sent across to you this photograph of this shoe. First things first, I was trying to establish exactly what size this was. So what were your thoughts on that? Well, my, my initial thoughts was that let's, let's actually measure it. I mean, I don't know where the size 11 came from and the, the fact that it was an 11, because the, the, you might notice the insocks missing. Yeah, um, and that might have a size on it. If it's been resold, we can't see a size on the bottom or anything like that. It could be on the lining, but we'll talk about that perhaps uh, a little bit later. One of my hobbies is making model railway locomotives, and quite often I I can't find a a drawing for the obscure things I make. So um, I I often scale up photographs. So this was quite easy to do because it actually has a lovely scale on it that's quite readable. Yeah. So I actually scaled this onto. Um, a very basic CAD system. Yeah. And um, that allowed me to, and I concentrated on the length because, you know, if this is a copy of a copy of a copy, they don't always uh, copy one to one. Yeah. So the width changes and they sometimes look a bit fat and they should be in that kind of thing. But um, you can be confident in the length, do you think, in terms of that? I could be very confident in the length there because I've, I scaled it to, there's a lovely, ruler down the right hand side that uh, it marks 30 centimeters so that's a good you know it's a good length that's uh, very very low uncertainty very low error mm-hmm. and then what i did was i kind of like the bottom of the the last little bit of the shoe is missing on the picture right. but i can have i mean obviously i've seen a few shoes i can have a pretty good guess at that what that insole that uh, which is the bottom pattern of the last the length it would be mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and when i measured that after scanning it up i came out at uh, 315 mm-hmm. uh, 0.5 millimeters mm-hmm. and that's that's bang on what a last length should be for a size 12 okay. which should be 313 okay. um so it's very very close to the bottom up the bottom pattern of the last is is an important um, feature of the last and just to explain that in terms of non-shoemakers, the last is the 3D model. It essentially goes in a shoe. That it is. You shape the leather around the shoe. Yeah, it's the, fo- it's the former that forms the fit. Yeah. And the leather or upper is shaped around that and pulled down. And then it's what we call heat set so that it retains the shape of that last. So it's the last that is designed to fit the foot. And then we use shoemaking processes to ensure that the upper retains the shape of that last okay well that's interesting so a size 12 would be a 313 last size and that would give an overall length of the shoe which is shown in the picture of about 330 millimeters yeah somewhere around that i mean it depends on the overlap of the sole yeah um but from from my measurements it's about yeah about 331 millimeters long okay and that would naturally be associated with a size 12 in the UK. Yes. So it's not an 11 and it's not a 16, but what it is, if it is a size 12, is still quite a rare size, isn't it, in the general population of... Very much so. What kind of proportion of people would be, of men, would be wearing a size 12? Five or six percent. They they didn't make many of these dozens (laughs) a year. 
such a low number of people would buy them. Shoes are manufactured size profile, so the you know they, they make thousands of eights. Uh, you know, if you made a thousand eights, you might make I don't know a few dozen twelves. So let's work on that basis that it's a twelve, and still only one in twenty people in the world will be wearing that size. Oh yes, oh yes, yes. Okay, yes. so secondly, the style. Is that a style? Because I know you've been involved, well, with Satra for quite a long time. You will have seen quite a few shoes from way back. What kind of date range would you put on a shoe of that style? And where do you think that was made? Well, this, this, is, this is where it's quite lucky. And I think it's to do with contacts and, and who you know. I, I have a, a, a friend who used to work there in the 90s. And at churches? At churches. And I asked him, and he, he said, it was before my time, but his dad <laughs> worked, right. also worked at churches. So he actually asked him, and he in- instantly recognised it as right. the, the the group of loafers that were actually made in Northampton before they started using the Italy. And, and he recognised that instant, instantly by the um, kind of like the bulky apron and the square toe. You know, this is a obviously an elderly gentleman who instantly recognised that as something that he used to deal with in Northampton. They stopped some sometime between like eighty seven and ninety. They they stopped making them in Northampton. So we're talking about a shoe that's older than that. So if they made them up until the late nineteen eighties, and because of the shape of the shoe, this is Northampton made rather than an Italian made shoe, we can be fairly confident that this <laughs> shoe was made at some point in Northampton. In the eighties, pretty confident about that. I don't know, I don't know how long that style was made for yet. I mean, it could even be late seventies, you know, but it's certainly pre eighty eight ish. But of course, they were sold all over the world. You know, they were shipped all over the world. Well, that's um, interesting in itself. Um, yeah. So we've got a shoe that's made probably in a window of maybe, what, 1978 to about 1988? I couldn't really... Very, very possibly. That's a good range to pick, yes. Okay, interesting. Yeah. I, I remember you mentioned to me on an email that you had some interesting thoughts about the wear that you were seeing on that shoe. Yeah, I, I obviously I've listened to your other podcasts. The shoe's a pretty good preserver. The, the, the wear marks across the vamp that you can see, which is the front part of the shoe there, Mm-hmm. are completely indicative of walking what would happen in as you walked yeah so as that the, flexes yeah the flex the flex line there yeah. the insock is missing yeah and of course we don't know you know when 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 the the, the cold case the gentleman was recovered we don't know if the insock came out or whatever because they usually stuck on with fairly light adhesive so that could have come off when they actually undressed the gentleman yeah. but but of, of, of what one of the particular if you see the, the boat shape at the back there yeah um it, that that that's someone who's put that shoe on and pressed the heel down and and crunched the heel and you can see either side on the the image that the lining has actually folded and uh ruched i suppose you, you'd call it uh, and that that happens over time when you keep putting a shoe on by not putting your heel in properly so just to be clear for me, I mean, essentially, there are three ways to put a shoe on that you can maneuver using your finger to just uh, allow your foot to slip into the shoe. You could yeah. use a shoehorn to yeah. enable you to do that. The third way, which 
not many people I imagine would do would be simply to crush the heel and push yeah. your, push your foot in and wait for the heel to spring back over your own heel. Is, yes. Are these the three yeah. ways we're describing and, and well, this yes. year looks like it's been done the third way? <clears throat> it's the third way and uh, from my own personal experience, who uh, a lover of fine footwear, yeah. you would not treat a shoe like that if you just spent all that money on it. And um, that brings me back to something I mentioned earlier when you we're talking about size. We're talking about someone who's probably six foot six. Yeah. If we're drifting into the realms of these might have been second hand. Right. Um, okay. If he's if he had got like thirteens or fourteens, they wouldn't fit him. So he might be wearing them as slippers. Now, when they were oh. taken off the body, was the heel was the foot actually in the shoe, or were they being wear, worn like a slipper? Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, so there's a there's a new thing. It is a new, new thing. New idea, yeah. Yeah. And so I've, I've been in certain countries, by the way, where that happens. You see that? Yes, you do. You do, okay. because um, if you can well, wear them like a slipper, it, it gives you a bigger range of footwear that you can purchase, you say, or, or get hold of if, you, you know, if your income's limited or so, so forth. Or you've got particularly big feet and you're looking for second-hand mm. shoes and they don't have a 14. And 12s are rare. 14s, 13s and 14s are rare things. If you... If you're looking for, but, um, you know, if you're looking, if you've got big feet, these are hard, these are going to be hard to find. There won't be many around. Um, okay. So just stepping back a bit, there's a couple of things I just want to pick up and dig a little bit deeper on there. You mentioned the vamp, the upper, the, the walk, the walking flex marks. Yeah. Now, is it fair to think that when this person went into the sea wearing those shoes, there would have been considerable visible wear marks on those shoes. They weren't smart. They were badly, badly weathered. I've, I've got the picture on my screen right now, so I can mm. relate to it. What I'm looking at now is a shoe where if you just, if you didn't, if I didn't know the background story, mm. I wouldn't have said, wow, that's been in the sea a long time. I'd just say that's, that's heavily worn. Someone has not really treated them that well. They've obviously been crushing the heel down wouldn't have occurred to me that that's actually water damage. It looks like a very worn out left shoe. There's a buckle on it that's broken. I can't imagine anybody walking along with a broken buckle buckle because that would swing around and be quite annoying. Interestingly, it's broken so that it would flip over to the right. Yeah. And it's a left shoe, so you'd actually tread on it and trip over. So I don't believe that buckle broke in wear. Um, okay, that's interesting. So you think yeah. that may have happened afterwards? Yeah, post. Yeah. I, th I pretty much believe. Yeah, but it looks like a worn shoe to me. I mean, it looks like a well-worn shoe. Um, well, there's, there's a couple of things that, that spring from that. One, there wasn't significant water damage. That might be important in terms of how long he was in the water. I think so, yeah. But uh, the sea's actually quite good at preserving things. Yeah. It, it's because of the salt water. But the picture I'm getting from you, which is really interesting, is a little bit different to the picture I think a lot of people have of this guy who they've called the gentleman. And the implication of that is he's very smart, he's very well-dressed, he's got these really expensive shoes on. And when I say expensive shoes, you go and buy them now, the £750, pounds, oh, yeah. $1,000 oh, yeah. repair. Oh, yeah. So they are very expensive shoes. Yeah, and we've definitely. always had the impression that this man is quite well-to-do businessman. But what you're kind of drawing a picture of there mm. 
is of a man wearing shoes that he's broken the back of in terms of the heel. There's very excessive wear across the van. These would not have looked smart the day he died. Yes, I believe that that's a correct conclusion. I think that these would have looked scruffy on on the day that that, that, that happened. Wow! Um, if you had spent that much on a pair of shoes new, you would not treat them like that. No, uh, would would you? I mean, no. Even if you had money to burn, you you wouldn't treat them like that because no, you um, yeah, he might have bought them new and he might have fallen on bad time on, on on bad times. But yeah. We're seeing a shoe that's kind of like a bit abused. A smart gentleman, as, as, as is promoted. Maybe it suggests somebody who, who, who came across these shoes somewhere and it wasn't the original owner. Maybe, yeah. was, maybe yeah. was using those shoes because they were the biggest he could find, where he was maybe a slightly bigger size and was abusing the shoes in order to wear them almost. I, I, I think so. And it's not just the shape of the heel. It's the the folding of the lining is what happens when you can over you know do you not this is not just doing it once you do it over and over and over and over yeah. again, which is kind of like I don't want to use the word lazy but it's kind of like not how you would treat a not how I would tr- treat a pair of shoes like this a thousand dollar pair of shoes no yeah. I hundred yeah. percent agree with that and it's careless and it's and it implies the person who wore them didn't attach great value to them. I, I, I agree. I, I think he, he likely got these because they fitted. Wow. Uh, well, Tom, that's been absolutely fascinating. So I, I'm going to have to digest everything you've told me there, but I knew, <laughs> I knew it would be a smart move putting this picture in front of you. And, and so it's proved. I think we've got a pretty good, a pretty good estimate now of what the size was of the shoe. Might not have been his, his size, because he might have yeah. been slightly bigger than that. That's really interesting about the style and the fact that you know people who recognise that as being made in Northampton between 1978 and 1988. And by the way, if it is eight or nine years old, that might explain the wear patterns. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, and thirdly, your conclusions about what the wear pattern says about the ownership of that shoe is uh, fascinating. I mean, if you wanted me to stab in the dark, I don't think we're looking for this rich gentleman anymore. I think we're looking for someone different from that. Wow. Okay, well, that, that's a really interesting conclusion. So, hey, Tom, all I can say is thanks so much for spending time on this. And I know you spent quite a bit of time on it, so I'm extremely grateful. That's, it's, it's a pleasure. It's been um, it's quite interesting. You, 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 you caught my interest. <laughs> <laughs> I have a horrible habit of doing that to people. But thanks, Tom. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Well, that was a very, very interesting conversation with Tom Bates. Until this point, I think everyone has been thinking that this was a very smartly dressed man, a businessman, the gentleman, no less. But maybe those shoes... And the state of those shoes has revealed the first clue that maybe that wasn't the lifestyle he was leading. What does the wear pattern of those shoes say about the victim? That is a very good observation about the heel damage. I would never crush the back of a heel in order to put my shoe on. You wouldn't wreck the heels in that way. And on a pair of shoes that today would cost nearly £800 or $1,000... Why would you treat them like that? Except 
if you didn't pay anything for them, they didn't have any value to you, or they didn't quite fit. So I'm obliged to Tom, and that's given us quite a lot of food for thought. Thanks for downloading the podcast. We really do appreciate your company on this journey. And please make sure you keep us informed of your own theories on the case. That can be a very important source of ideas for us. And you can do that either through the Facebook page, who was the Gentleman of Heligoland, or by sending us an email to thegentlemanofheligoland at gmail.com. We answer every email, I promise you that. Now, as the Fred the Head podcast is now on a well-earned break for a couple of months, we can start to establish this podcast in more of a routine. Essentially, we've been releasing the first four podcasts of this at a rate of about one a week. And that's really to make sure we all get off to a fast start and everybody understands the basics of the case from the early stages. But now we're gonna settle down into a more regular rhythm of fortnightly episodes. So podcast five will be released on Sunday the 3rd of April and then every other Sunday for the foreseeable future. And I've got a feeling things are gonna hot up on this case. A little bird has told me that the media attention in Europe on this case is about to take a significant step forward in the next few weeks. So it will be very interesting to see what happens when that happens. But. There's a few more things we need to think about in this podcast. We're still trying to find out exactly the identity of the man who died in Brighton. Was he the missing man from Toronto? Or was he, in some way, related to the man in the sea off Germany? And there's been a few people doing some excellent work on that, and I need to catch up with Ian to talk that through with him. But also, we needed to try and find out more from the investigators, and we'd hit a bit of a brick wall on that I think but then I had one of my rare bright ideas but firstly I needed to catch up with Ian right I just want to keep you up to date on a couple of things as well so certainly one thing obviously thinking about the man who died in Lower Rock Gardens uh, back in 1992. My good friend Mo Tomlin, who was uh, involved in the Fred podcast, did me a favour, a uh, big favour. She went down to a place called The Keep in Brighton because she found the electoral roll for 1992. And there he is, Michael Dean, living in room 7, 13 Lower Rock Gardens. So we know Michael Dean is there in 1992. What's interesting, a couple of interesting things about that, clearly he was living in literally a room in a big place, sounds almost like a hostel. Secondly, he uses Michael Dean, not Michael S. Dean, but we know his name is Michael Sterling Dean. And that's the same way he described his name if he's the same man in Canada, because the man in Canada only called himself Michael Dean. So that's another slight tie-up to that. So that's very useful to know he was there at at that particular time and what he called himself. Now, have you been in contact with Fiona Griffin chasing some other stuff down uh, down in Brighton? Yes, Fiona Fiona went to the keep after Mo did and 
I think found what Mo found, duplicated it a little bit. However, she did she did go a little bit further. What I have got, which I think is very interesting for Shona, is that uh, Fiona found the electoral roll for nineteen ninety one, and in nineteen ninety one, there is a different person living in flat seven. Okay. 13 to 14 lower rock gardens. She also found the electoral roll for 1993 and duplicated that for us as well. Uh, and that's interesting because we've got a different person in 1991. We've got Michael Dean living there in 1992. Michael Dean dying there yeah. at the end of 1992. 1993, Fat 7's not mentioned on the electoral roll. So I think that that is empty. I think that's what that means. Certainly not Michael Dean anymore. Okay, okay, okay. Well, that obviously does tie in with the fact that Michael Dean died in that flat in, or that room in, uh, at the end of 1992. I guess morbidly, he might have been there a while, so they may, may not have been in a position to quickly rent out that room again afterwards. Uh, mm. There might have been some remedial work that might needed to have been done. There's a piece in the paper, isn't there, I think, from around that time that uh, talks about his death. Is, is, uh, have you got this at hand? Yeah, I have. I've got it from the uh, Brighton Argus. Uh, and I know Mo found this as well, but Fiona found it mm. too. Tiny paragraph. It's headed, Poisoning Death. Assistant Deputy Coroner Michael Keane recorded a verdict of accidental death on Michael Dean, 50, of Lower Rock Gardens, Brighton. A Brighton inquest heard that Mr. Dean died of poisoning from large amounts of alcohol and tablets. Right. Of course, we were hoping to find more detail in a newspaper report because we're still obviously trying to confirm that Michael Dean in Brighton is six foot six. Unfortunately, no further forward with having found the report in the Argus. Okay, I think the what we're going to have to do on that is rely on Shona in Canada. I know Shona has requested the coroner's report and the autopsy, which will definitely have a height on it. So as soon as she finds that out, she's promised that she'll let us know on that. So I guess we're probably, hopefully by the time of the next podcast, will know definitively the height of the man who died in Brighton. If he's six foot five, six foot six, we know we've sorted the man out in Canada. If he's five foot ten, well, all bets are off then. But uh, we'll know that, I think, in time for yeah. podcast five. Well, Fiona did also go hunt and I don't know where she even, I didn't even know this sort of record existed, but she did hunt around uh, in the keep and found copies of the coroner's daily record okay when she said she'd found them i was quite excited because i thought yeah. that would have some basic information on it um it does it has that michael dean has died an accidental death it's got the date of his inquest the date he's reported he was he was found uh it's got the cause of death on it unfortunately it doesn't give any further details so no no height no age but fantastic ferreting fiona it is, and uh, magnificent mining, Mo. <laughs> it's hats off to you two. Obviously, we're a long way from Brighton, so the fact that you were around that neck of the woods and gave up your time 
to go and find out this information, which I think is very useful. And I'll be passing this information on to Shona in Canada straight away. That's been a major advantage for us to have you down there. So thanks very much indeed for doing that. Now, I know you've been working the long hours again, trying to find missing people all around the world, haven't you? And, and is, is there someone that's kind of stuck out a little bit in that search that, I, that we need to know about? Well, there was um, a lot of excitement and a lot of our focus has been traced on Michael Dean because we've made a lot of progress on that. Yeah. However, as time unfolded and, and we feel, I think, that if Michael Dean is the champion Brighton, he can't be the gentleman of Heligoland and therefore we're continuing to hunt wherever we can hunt to try and find likely candidates for who may have ended up in the North Sea in 1994. And I did come across uh, quite an interesting case, which I thought was worthy of further investigation. Okay. This is a chap, if you remember, when we found Michael Dean, we, we went through and he had three bullseyes in terms of the height and the weight and the timing. So I think we've got, it's not a bullseye, it's an, it was an inner, but it was worth persevering because it was close. We found a chap, six foot two, who'd gone missing at bullseye at the right time, went missing in the summer of 1993 from okay. a place called Waterford in Connecticut. So in, in the United States? In the United States, yes. And uh, we hummed and hard over whether that was relevant because he, you know, how could he have a Canadian tie on? Should we just rule him out on that? But actually, when you're looking to try and make these links and you, you see where, where Connecticut is, it's actually not far from Canada. No. And the reason that I thought that he could easily have disappeared into Canada and bought a tie hmm. is that he's a language teacher at a college and seems to have spent quite a while visiting different colleges in the, as part of his job. So anyway... This chap, Cyrus Jones Quinn, six foot two, close. Uh, it said he was 180 pounds. Is that close? It's worthy of investigation anyway. The reason why I thought it was worthy of investigation for him is that, as I say, he's a language teacher and he flew out of JFK on June the 1st for an extended vacation in Mallorca, Spain. Uh, and then he failed to return home in July. When the authorities went back to check the home that he'd rented for his vacation. They found all of his belongings, apart from his wallet and his camera. There's on the uh, American Missing Persons database, despite extensive searches, Quinn was never located. Just to recap on that then, so, okay, six foot two, which is a, a little bit shorter than the body, but we don't really know the effect of immersion in salt water for very long periods of time might have on the body so he's what we do know six foot two in a very small proportion of people of that height which is why i thought six foot two six foot five as they say for the gentleman is actually got a little bit of a variance to it this chap could be and he, he went missing in europe that is the interesting thing that they know that he was in europe now yorkers you know a long way from from Elgoland, but uh, he could have been travelling all over Europe once he's got there, particularly if he's interested in languages. That's what I thought. Mm. No, that makes sense. So, where did you get to on uh, on Cyrus? Well, uh, I I turned it all over to our 
internet on legs, you called her, didn't you, to Joe and, uh, and his details, birthday, and she she went to work trying to trying to see if she could track him down. But she found Cyrus living at Waterford, Connecticut, from 1990, and that is the address that we have that he went missing from. Right, so we know she's found the right person. Interestingly, she then finds him on the US Index to Public Records. On the 1994 to 2014, he's down as living, I'll give out his address in case he's still there, but he's out as living in New York. But he's got the same first name, surname, middle name, and the same date of birth? Birth date, March 1950. So we don't have the day in March, but he's born in the same month and year as our other Cyrus J. Queen. Does this mean that the police in Connecticut have got a missing person that you and Joe have tracked down in New York? That is how it looked to us. And in fact, I called a very sceptical detective to start with, (laughs) Waterford, Connecticut Police Department. But I went through what we had done. And when I started mentioning that we had tracked him down on the US Index to Public Records, he started getting very interested because I think he knows that that is something that, that they rely on. Our wonderful Joe had not only found him all on there, but when she'd searched the address that he was meant to be living at, she even got a telephone number for him. I gave the Waterford Police Department in Connecticut here the, all the details that Joe had found, including the telephone number and including the address. He's promised that he's going to come back to me when he, when he decides if they've still got a missing person. But the first thing he did was to confirm that the case that I'm talking to him about remains outstanding. So they still have a 29-year-old missing person case, which I think Joe has managed to clear up. Okay, the important bit of information on that, firstly, he's, he's clearly not the gentleman, but we needed to find out that he wasn't, and he clearly wasn't, because he turns up again in New York later on. Yeah. But he's still a missing person in America. So between you and Joe, you seem to have potentially solved two missing persons cases in a different continent in the space of four podcasts. <laughs> well, we'll see, won't we? We'll see. Part of me kind of hopes that we haven't solved Shona's case and that he's actually the gentleman, but yeah. my gut feel is that we have. I, I, that's where my gut feeling is, but I tell you what, there must be a business in solving all these missing persons cases for the states in a matter of two weeks. But I don't that, know why we can't find the ones that have got huge rewards, Ken. That, maybe that's the next series. So just to recap on a few things, great that we've been able to find the electoral role showing Michael Dean and also not showing Michael Dean so we can go back and make sure that uh, Shona is aware of that because she specifically asked me to dig that out and that's a really interesting tale about Cyrus J Quinn not our missing man in the North Sea but we need to check these down I imagine there'll be quite a few more of these people that we need to check through and it's good to get the feedback in terms of how they turn out particularly if they turn out to solve a missing persons case in America. Well done, Joe. Well, well done you as well. Thanks, Ian. I'll keep you posted on any developments I get my end, but uh, I really appreciate the feedback on that. That was really useful. No problem. This is a mystery with few clues. And in a real-time investigation such as this one, that's a big obstacle. Whilst we seem to be making the most out of what we've got, there is still precious little to go on. 
so we needed to try to learn more about the investigation. The obvious problem with that was that the main investigation was being conducted in Germany and my German is non-existent so my chances of making serious headway with the German authorities was seriously limited. I needed some help. But how? Well, one of the benefits of the Fred investigation is that over the years I've bumped into people during the course of that case which I may be able to ask for help on this case. And one person who I'd spoken to about Fred was a lady called Manuela Klupel. She's a freelance journalist based in Dusseldorf, Germany, and a very good one. Maybe if I spoke nicely to Manuela, she might be able to assist me. And happily, she was able to. Just like in the UK, there are various academic institutions involved now in this case. The same was happening in Germany. In particular, the Polizeiakademie Niedersachsen, the Police Academy of Lower Saxony. And their detective director is a man called Karsten Bettels. Manuela called Karsten and spoke about the details of the case with him in German. And then we had a call about what he had said. Hello? Hello, Manuela, Ken Davis here. How are you? Uh, I'm fine, and you? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. I'm, uh, I'm on the edge of my seat. I, I just wondered how that conversation went. Oh, it's, well, it was really good. Um, he told me a couple of things. I, I tried to ask him your questions. And, um, I didn't ask him all of the questions no. because he is not really able to answer them at all because some of these questions uh, that can only be answered by uh, the police themselves, uh, the one um, who are leading the investigation. Uh, some stuff he doesn't know and some stuff he's not allowed to say. I understand. Okay. He told me that the body was uh, exhumed, this is the right word, uh, in December. Oh. He was doing right now, they are doing a DNA analysis wow. and isotope analysis. The, the students got all the all old case files and everything and, and they made a, su a suggestion what to do to get new leads. They made a suggestion to go to the public, that was one point, and another one was to do the DNA analysis, the isotope analysis. The body was exhumed in December and uh, they are awaiting the results, uh, aren't there yet. Mm -hmm. So, um, And he told me that the, the DNA analysis, they are supposed to come soon. I talked about the tie. I told him about your podcast and mm -hmm. I sent him a link to your yeah. podcast so he can take a look at it. I told him about your theory that Thai comes from Canada mm -hmm. and, and he said they knew that it was produced in Canada but they expected it to be for the international market. That's interesting and it's a mistake on their part because it would say made in Canada on it. It would need to say that if it was made yeah. for the international market. It's this is what I, I, I told him and then I told him that he should listen to your podcast about this. Thank you. <laughs> wow, okay. And so they, they themselves thought there was a Canadian connection through the tie. Yes, but they thought it was uh, for the international market, so that's uh, why they don't think that 
the person has a connection to Canada personally. Okay. So most of the clothes seem to be from UK or the English English speaking area of Europe, I guess. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's why they are um, suggested that the person is coming from English-speaking part of Europe, okay. I guess. Those are the clothes, the, sh the shirt and the trousers. Is there any specific reason? Was there any labels or anything like that on them? They, they just put out the labels where, where they didn't know uh, anything about. Okay. Um, I see. So, so the labels they weren't sure about, they're the ones they put out in the uh, yeah. information to the general public. The other yes. labels... They suggest England, do they? Yes, that's, that's the point. He told me that you can try to contact him and arrange an, an interview with him. So okay. that's what he told me. Oh, well, that's very so, kind of him and very kind of you for asking. Okay, that's yes. interesting. And, but, but, but he would like to know what, is gonna, what it's going to be about because uh, he cannot answer everything and in detail. That's interesting because uh, you are having some quite interesting leads. That's interesting. So, I mean, was there anything else he said to you that you weren't aware of through listening to the podcast? I just want to make sure I've captured anything else that he said. They, they are sure that it's, uh, he was killed because, uh, of, uh, because of his injuries. Okay. Um, so it's not just a suggestion, but they are sure it's, uh, that he was killed. The other thing is about the, um, the way he was weighted down yeah is um he couldn't say me anything in detail because that's knowledge um that uh, the offender was would have so yeah. they don't put this out in the public that's but perfectly understandable and that's the reason why they, they they don't say anything more in detail about this they try to identify in the 90s by um dna analysis um mm -hmm. but they just had the Mitochondrial, yeah, uh, mitochon mitochondrial DNA. DNA. Yes. yes, because in those days uh, they they just uh, could extract this only, mm -hmm. and um, so they um, tried to do um, so they could exclude some uh, people from Germany who who were missing and had the same size. Mm -hmm. So they could uh, they excluded these persons. So they are sure he's not from Germany. Didn't work because. Uh, Uh, they would have needed the nuclear DNA, yeah, uh, and uh, because of uh, the database there, and uh, they didn't have the nuclear DNA. Yeah. But with now, um, they are hoping uh, they are to get uh, the nuclear DNA with the new uh, techniques. Ah, so okay. maybe this might help to identify the person. Okay, that's um, very interesting. That's very interesting. So. Did he give you any indication of what the injuries were? No. He just told me that they were done to the person before he was dead. So that's for sure. Okay. Uh, he told me that there's, um, they have teeth, um, so, so he could identify the person about the teeth as well, okay. if they would have something to compare. Okay. Um, okay, that's very interesting. Was there anything unusual about the teeth at all or was it was it just i asked him but but he couldn't tell me anything okay. so it's like because i suggested maybe because there are different techniques in different countries but i think he they didn't get so deeply into this okay so, ah, one thing i forgot to uh, talk about the shoe size oh, yeah. um 
the two sides about the 11 because uh, you were just suggesting it was too big and mm. everything um, the shoe size they got, got from the because it's an international cooperation of different uh, um, police academies and, and, and studies they got from their British partner so they said that it's a UK 11 it's not, nothing they Ooh, did themselves okay. but their British partners told them it should be an, an 11 I think it does help having someone make you that call who's of the same nationality. Yes, uh, yeah, it was easier because he, we just got into, into 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 chatting, and then I asked him all not all but some of your questions, and he was he was really really nice. So it's like I think you you should try to talk to him because it's probably much easier to talk to him than talking to the police. <laughs> I suspect you're right. Thank you for all your work. I really appreciate your help on that. And I'll probably also have a conversation with Karsten uh, Bettles as well. But do that. I think this might be interesting. And I think it's going to be interesting to him as well, especially if you have, because you have all these details about the clothing, this knowledge. Thanks, Manuela. Bye. Bye-bye. So that was interesting. He was murdered. Wasn't just a suggestion of foul play. He was definitely murdered. The body was exhumed in December. They're extracting DNA, they're conducting isotope analysis, and they've got the dental records. He was weighted down. I wonder with what? And that tie. So the police have connected that tie to Canada. But they think it was sold outside Canada. I'm not so sure about that. And the injuries he suffered, he suffered before death. It's making me wonder, was he killed on land and taken into the sea for disposal? So where do we go from here? Well, obviously we'll continue to look for more and more missing persons that fit that description. But there's something I spoke to Shona about last week that came to my mind. I haven't mentioned it to you before because it kind of ties in with what we heard earlier on about the shoes. The presence of clothes in a relatively undamaged state suggests the body wasn't in the water for very long. And what Tom told us earlier makes me think the shoes went in the water for very long. So I want to learn a bit more about what happens to bodies when they're immersed for long periods in water. And maybe also the drift patterns in that part of the North Sea. But that's for next time. So, until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of the Gentleman of Heligoland is a copyrighted GSE Media production, written and narrated by Ian Mackay and Ken Davis, and produced by myself, Ken Davis. <laughs>